Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Cup Duet Reviews. My name is Jillian Robinson. I am the co-artistic producer here at Cup of Hemlock Theatre. And today I am joined by the incredible Ryan Barakovich, one of our co-artistic producers. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing all right, Jill. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, actually. Thanks for asking. Today, we are unpacking and discussing the Canadian premiere of Heroes of the Fourth Turning by Will Arbery. It is a production happening right now with the Howling Company and Crows Theatre, directed by the incredible Phil Aiken, assisted directed by the astonishing Stephen Howe, and it consists of a five-cast team that just helms the piece there's a lot we're going to discuss of this piece deals with so many themes and I think they the chemistry was incredible. We'll get into each of those artists individually down the line, but before we dive too far in, let's start with our icebreaker because I feel like we are going to need an icebreaker for this one. Ryan, what are you sipping on this morning? So yeah, we, we are recording this early in the morning, not mm-hmm. the night that we saw the show. So I have hot coffee to, you know, perk up my day, but I have it in this Canadian tire mug that has like the Toronto skyline because it is the Canadian Toronto premiere of this very American play. And watching this play made me very happy that I live in Canada. So (laughs) happy to represent with this. How about you? What's in your cup? Amazing. Yes, I am also on the morning coffee train in just the cup cup. I thought, you know, I'd fully immerse myself into what we're doing today vanilla hazelnut coffee with butter pecan creamer yeah just all the things to perk us up and I also have some water in my reusable water bottle which Ruth who plays Teresa uses a reusable water bottle in the play so I thought you know (laughs) what the heck (laughs) we'll pepper it in great okay so as per usual Ryan I'm gonna volley to you why don't you give a short synopsis of this piece for folks listening yes, or watching. And, this, and this will be the non-spoiler portion yes. and we will put up a spoiler shield before we get too specific and who how do you describe heroes of the fourth turning precisely <laughs> without spoilers uh, so so this is a play it's an American play from I believe it premiered in 2019 and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2020. So, but this is, yeah, making its Canadian debut. It's set in Wyoming in 2017 at immediately following the Unite the Right rally that happened in Charlottesville that had very disastrous consequences and kind of revealed a lot of the, the I guess, high players in the Republican Party in Trump's administration to be allied with literal Nazis carrying tiki torches and spewing hatred. So that's the context we're dealing with right here. And so we're set at a nearby, it's like a conservative Catholic college, I think is the <laughs> the proper term for uh, this kind of institution. And uh, we are following four characters who are all uh, mostly former students, but have some sort of affiliation with the school. And uh, they're all uh, yeah, they, they're no longer students, uh, and they're they're kind of just uh, reflecting. They're united here because they're one of their mothers, Dr. Presson, Gina Presson, has just been made president of the university. So they're having a bit of a celebration for her, and that brings them together. 
And our principal players are Justin, a mature student who used to be in the Marines and, you know, has some demons. We have Kevin, who's a, a silly little guy, and we'll get more into the specifics of all of them. Um, we have Teresa, who is basically, uh, you know, a big supporter of Steve Bannon and very confident in all of her conservative talking points, the way she, she writes for a website that's not stated to be Breitbart, but probably Breitbart. And uh, and then we have uh, Emily, who is Dr. Presson's daughter, who we are told actually never went to the school, but uh, she is still kind of connected to all of this. Mm -hmm. and, and she has some kind of undisclosed disease that gives her chronic pain of some kind. And then eventually Dr. Presson shows up and is really is just this melting pot of ideas that like to get into the specifics of all the things they talk about they talk about religion they talk about politics they talk about their agreements their disagreements the, the their understanding of the culture war as it has often been called and i think to sum up this play like any more specifically in its content is probably redundant what i think this play is really trying to do is take an honest warts and all but ultimately non-judgmental look at the kinds of conservative middle American people who people in our large theater metropolitan cities like New York or Chicago, where I believe this play might have premiered, would be easy to dismiss and just think like, oh, they all kind of think the same thing. They're all just racists or bigots. And these characters certainly are racists and bigots. Like, let's not give them a pass on that. But they're surprisingly intelligent. And this school that they've gone to teaches them equal parts poetry, philosophy, religion, but also outdoor wilderness survival skills and mountain climbing. And they, you know, they quote poems at length and like in completely verbatim and they spout philosophy and they, they are a little more nuanced than I think the caricature portrait that a lot of people on the left would maybe apply to them, but in a way that also doesn't disregard or sidestep their views, isn't necessarily trying to make you sympathize with them or understand where their views are coming from as much as it is just trying to show as, as I think we discussed after, these people exist and they're more complicated mm -hmm. than you might think. To say any more would probably get into spoilers. I don't know if there's anything you want to add or do, should we do general appraisals? No, just I guess this was without spoiling because this is just present in the text, what I'm about to say. But yeah, it does take place in, in a, the, a very small secluded town in Wyoming and the, the whole play happens on this outside porch. Mm -hmm. So characters exit and enter through a house, which is where they're doing this post-party celebration for the Dr. Preston, but it's it all happens on a porch, which we'll get into, like, particularly how Crow Studio Theater, how that looked and such, but just to kind of really, I guess, paint the picture of it is intense, high chunks of intellectual text happening on a porch in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the wilderness. Yeah, I guess just to kind of add some texture there, but yeah. I think we can probably dive into spoilers now. Okay, do you want you to, think? before we do, should we give a general appraisal just like for people oh, who yeah, don't hello. want the spoilers to yes, of course, decide if of they course. want to see it? <laughs> so yeah, so I guess just jumping off where, where I came from. Yeah, this run, I also didn't mention at the top of the episode, but it, it was extended before it even opened, extended to October 29th. And as it stands, there are very little tickets left. Like most shows only have one or two remaining. And I think there's only a handful of days at the end of the extension already that have some tickets. So if you folks want to come see the show, absolutely jump on it. 
I would say, see this show. Absolutely. But kind of as Ryan was saying, this piece is, we talked about this, Ryan, too. It's kind of like an ideas, a thinker piece. And I think like when you and I read the text just together, like off the page, that was kind of our consensus. And then going to see the show, I was expressing to you, oh, I love how we got to see bodies do this because it really highlighted like how some of the characters, again, like I said, we're in such a a tightly packed space. Like you really do get to observe, wow, that character has has just been observing and absorbing this whole chunk of conversation. That's something you don't really get when you read it off the page. And as I said earlier in the introduction, this cast was so tight and kismet. Like watching people's reactions to the action is just wonderful subtext that you get to see lifted off the page that doesn't exist if you just read the show. So yeah, I think overall the cast it masterfully brought this text to light. You and I also chatted, Ryan, too, about how this text is interesting for both of us. Like it's, I think even by by seeing it, and this has nothing to do with the performances, but like the text doesn't help itself sometimes. Like I think there are, um, like these characters are seated to be certain people. And then, yeah, I just find found in the writing as the actor watching it, I kind of wanted some characters to maybe punch a little farther or say things a certain way, but the text is the text, right? So I think what the cast did with what they had was astonishing. So I don't know. Yeah, Brian, you talk now. I'm rambling. Um, yeah. So like, I also think, yes, you and I have both read this play before. In fact, we read it shortly after they announced that they were doing this, which was kind of pretty recent to when Assembly Theater and One for One Collective were doing Bone Cage at the time. And I said in our review of Bone Cage that, oh, these two plays are kind of similar to each other. And similar to Bone Cage, I expressed this at that time too, that I don't really know how I feel about either of these plays. Mm -hmm. I have kind of mixed feelings. I think to me, I think the way I described it at the time when we read it is I think there's a lot of great stuff in this play, but I'm not yet sure then and now if it really does coalesce into a great play. I think it has all the trappings of a great play and can really sweep you up into feeling like, wow, that's so brilliant and remarkable and I see what it's doing. But then you kind of like leave it and you're like, okay, but what exactly am I to take Mm -hmm. away from this? And I don't know, I would say that watching it definitely you know, gives more of a a sense than reading it. It, A lot is lost on the page. And this is an excellent performance that really does communicate it well. I was never bored for a second. I'll certainly say that. Oh my gosh. It's, and this is like over two hours, no intermission. There really is just nowhere in this play you could put an intermission. And yeah, it's, it is gripping from beginning to end and very, you know, it makes your head spin sometimes, but it, it is, it is a thoroughly entertaining piece, and hmm. yeah, there's certainly value to putting these types of people under a microscope, understanding where they're coming from. I maybe have some misgivings about the way it handles a lot of this material that we'll maybe talk about more post-spoiler, but I do think, yeah, if you are able to get some of the remaining tickets, this is a worthwhile play to see at least once. You maybe don't want to see it twice, but once is worth your time, and yeah, maybe we should get into the spoiler zone before we say more. Just to kind of piggyback off of that, right? I'm glad you brought Bone Cage, our, our Bone Cage conversation, back into play here because I think with that play and with this play, there's something about it's almost like I don't know if this would necessarily be a new genre, but it's like 
the idea of a very naturalist situation and conversation as like a starting piece for a play, but then peppering it with large swaths of either like in bone cage in bone cages instance poetic text and i would say like in there is poetic text in heroes as well but more what takes the place of that is like large political knowledge and ideologies and it there is kind of like this honestly like dissonance of form happening for me that maybe that's why my like this takeaway not knowing what the takeaway is I don't know, but I just had that cooking in my brain of like that. What? Yeah, you're right. Like what are we're watching this? We're seeing these people say these things and yet it's in like a, it's not like the theatrical way of going about it is very naturalist. It's, I don't know. It's just like a confusing mashup of what theater can do. Right. Like if we look at theaters through like a political lens And we look at theater as like a creative lens. I find with both these pieces, like they're kind of mashing the two or trying to Mm -hmm. obviously probably bone cage more than heroes in this situation, but like, yeah, it does leave the viewer and especially like a a viewer in the industry really needing to kind of parse through their thoughts of Mm -hmm. why was the piece that I just saw presented in this way? You know, Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's just a little side note. Yeah. Flavor that was cooking in my brain. Okay. Shall we get into the spoilers? Yes. Let's do it. Okay. So, right now, don't worry. You're not going to hear a loud sound. We promise. You are going to see a generator, a spoiler generator, but don't, no need to cover your ears. It's fine. It's just the image of a spoiler generator. We're going to begin generating spoilers from this point on, possibly. <laughs> Okay. okay, we're in. That was kind of cool. It was like a little micro spoiler of like, what's the generator? Yeah, and I was like, don't cover the, your ears. You yeah. have to see the show to find out. And, you know, it actually isn't the generator that you need to cover your ears about for spoiling. Right. We can say that. Yeah. Um, okay, so. Let's actually, let's address the elephant generator in the room. Ge- what does the generator do in this piece, Ryan? So there is this recurring motif, I guess you could say, throughout this piece that every so often this horrible ear-shattering noise just goes off and the character of Justin whose house and porch this is set at says that's my generator it's been making this awful noise hang on I'll go tend to it and all the characters like ah that crazy generator and so this happens a few times throughout the show usually at very specific moments being punctuated by this sound and then at the very end we are told by Justin that it's not my generator I have absolutely no idea where the sound is coming from and so it kind of maybe teeters into something supernatural, something demonic. Hard to say exactly what the what is the origin of the sound. I kind of attribute it to something similar to the the chord breaking sound in Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard that is a similar sound of unknown origin that may stops time in a way and uh, makes the characters reflect on what what does it mean? But mm-hmm. yeah, your guess is as good as mine what it does mean. Yeah, well, I just even to to indicate the times in which it does go off per se, it's it's when they have talked like very deeply about like a certain ideology or a, or a certain aspect of Catholicism. It, it, I know, like you notice that kind of more again with seeing this piece versus reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it doesn't always happen when those sort of cans are open, but that's, it's kind of like right after a conversation of that nature happens, there's like a tiny beat and then the sound occurs. Yeah. I would just say, yeah, like I haven't, we read the text once and now I've seen it once more. I'm sure if you were to do a specific close reading of the text mm-hmm. of the three or four instances where it happens, that probably there is a meaningful thread. I'm sure you could connect between them. And as I think you're starting to unpack here, um, but yeah, having not yeah. done that labor, I, I wouldn't necessarily know specifically what that thread might entail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you're right. It does happen about three or four times. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the mostly the amount of people we have on stage at one time in this piece too right and there there's you know conversations that we kind of had with some folks after the show of like does it resemble kind of like the beginning of like a rapture or you know like is it like you just said is it some sort of extraterrestrial sound that's happening or like paranormal sound that's starting to invade you know these people's space and it does have a very tinny futuristic sound to it. And we, like I said, we are in a secluded country-esque, like part of the wilderness, this entire piece. So it is auditorially quite a different tone to kind of what we are visually seeing. But yeah, again, it it doesn't explicit. Everyone hears it though, and it does invade all of their ears and minds. It makes them feel uncomfortable yes, and, and scared. They- and I think we should give a shout out to the sound designer who had yes. to read this on the, in the text and decide what will that sound like. So yeah. who, who designed the sound in this? I'm just looking here. Jacob Lynn is the sound designer. Yes. So excellent job, Jacob, for, yeah. for bringing, yeah, bringing that. It, you, if it was supposed to be otherworldly and hurt our ears and disrupt the action, you have succeeded. Yeah, <laughs> speaking, amazing. Speaking of shouting people out for their hard work, should we get into the cast? I, you, yes, you are right in the same frame of mind with me, my friend. Okay. Yeah. So I shall read off our illustrious cast. So we had the character of Justin played by Mac Fife, the character of Teresa played by Ruth Goodwin, Kevin played by Cameron Laurie, Gina played by Maria Ricosa, and Emily played by Hallie Celine. Those so, are our cast. Yeah, I feel like we should, there's like not too many of them that we could probably give them each just like a little shout out. Absolutely. So, so yeah, mm-hmm. who do you want to start with? Who, who? I'd like to start with Mac sure. as our Justin. So this is the first character we see come on stage. And I just want to talk about like the way, I guess also we're, we might get into costumes while doing this too. So our costume designer, Laura Delcherio, apologies if I'm mispronouncing your name. So Mac comes on as Justin and instantly I'm like, yep, these are the people we're dealing with. He has like, like, uh, like jeans on plaid vibes. He's got like, you know, a, a mug that's like this brown kind of looks like a mug that's been in your family for years He's got his hair maybe looks like it hasn't been washed in a while. It's in like a tiny little half man bun action. And he's got like a leather belt on. It's just like the perfect archetype of like a middle American man mm-hmm. coming out on his back. Yeah, exactly. Then like back veranda or porch breathing in this like country American air. 
And I really like Max performance as Justin, like that, what I just said, him carrying that through out the piece was fantastic. Like he's kind of one of our characters of little words. Like he doesn't have as much to say as the others. But again, like I said earlier, it's everyone's reaction to the action. And there was such like a stoic sort of like breath. I don't want to say breath of fresh air, but like this character, if you looked at him throughout, he was there, like just present, soaking in kind of on the exterior, but coming in when he needs. And I just, like I said, I think Mac Fife's performance really carried that through. And it was just like a lovely opposite to the other sort of spicy, feistier moments in this piece. And I kind of will talk about, I mean, obviously I'll vol- I can volley Mac to you as well, but I kind of want to talk about the men in this play. Like, sure. so can, can I, I might just, just talk about Lo- Cameron as well, but sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I just had a, a simple thought about to add about Mac before. Of course, sure, sure, I, sure. I just, I think the word that I feel like you're circling around with a lot of him that uh, is there's a softness to his performance of this mm-hmm. like grizzled manly man character that like he you know he has this like exterior image of like oh I'm the gruff guy and he is capable of violence. We're told that he was in the Marines. He was a sharpshooter. He literally has a sidearm a gun on his belt this entire show were introduced to him shooting a deer and mm-hmm. so but then there is like a, a tenderness throughout his performance that you know the grateful acre little story is this you know perfect example from it and you know i i think it, this is a difficult character for an actor to really pin down how exactly to approach him and you know, I think he's someone who's very easy to think, oh, you're just a big softy, a cuddly teddy bear. But then there's the stark shifts and uh, Mac's performance, I think, was so inspiring because that never felt like, oh, where did that come from? Or yep. it went with either the softness or the the gruffness that they both felt mm-hmm. like very unified parts of this character. And that one is always kind of in conflict or pushing down the other. Yeah. Uh, sorry, didn't mean to No, 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 that's yeah. great. But yes, I'm glad you brought up the firearm because that was kind of me leading into talking about Cam's performance as Kevin too. There's a large, the large back half of the play is a conversation happening between Teresa and Gina and Emily is sitting on the bench. So basically the women are in this production central, like they're in the center of the stage and you have the men flanking them sort of as bookends is kind of how I saw it. Yeah. And you had Mac as Justin leaning up against the um, house and very visibly you see his firearm tethered to his downstage side. And then on the flip side of the stage as the other bookend, you see Cam Laurie as Kevin sitting on a stump and you can see the whiskey bottle of his sort of tucked in the back of his pocket. And I just want to talk about that image because I think that directorially or stunning because you have these women and I will say again, women talking about all of the things politically and conservative and supporting these like men in American politics that have said and done atrocious things and to just have these women in support of it and unpacking all of that. And then you have, like I said, Hallie's performance of Emily sort of as 
observing this and just kind of being present in the conversation, not with these two sort of more tyrannical bulls of women. She kind of doesn't, can't really get a word in edgewide if she wanted to, but you have the men just observing, but then having the image of a gun and the image of whiskey tethered to their, these male bodies also, I just saw it was like such an interesting image of like our white patriarchal society, like not even American, just like North America, anything of like, these women are unpacking, unpacking, unpacking and, and, you know, having their voice expressing themselves. It's beautiful in a very kind of with the content they're saying, it personally demonic way. But then having these men flank them with these like these prop visuals and just listening. It just is like such an eerie, unsettling image that I think really fit the tone of this piece. Because I, you know, I've always, always said, even just talking about like the system of, you know, like Cam playing Kevin, like phenomenal growth of that, such a struggling character. Like from the very beginning, his character is on the road to get absolutely wasted and tries to kind of express his inner demons or express how he's feeling against how everyone else is feeling. And then just like vomits on top of himself and falls all over the stage and hits his head off the bench. Like he's just so he's suffering, you know, and he's, you know, the only thoughts he has are tethered to this school, to this religion, to this small town sort of mentality, if you will. And I just said like, like phenomenal sort of, opposite depictions of men in this situation, like through Mac and Cam's performance. And both, I think did such a great job of playing, like you said, the very like strong masculine man of the house versus like the little boy struggling, drowning Soy boy, as he's called soy boy, multiple times by Teresa. <laughs> and then this one of the, their final images. I just, I think it will be baked in my brain for such a long time of like, the guns and the whiskey, like, and just, again, talking about our system, like I say so many times, it's like the men, especially the young men in coming up in this system, like there is a lot of pressure and external vices that contribute to this ever going cycle of patriarchy. And a lot of them are falling pray to it because of, again, the system, breaking the system that our character of Teresa talks a lot about, which that's a good segue to Teresa, but I don't know, Ryan, if you want to jump on uh, this no, image or I guess, I guess before, Cam's performance. I, I, I love everything you're saying about the image. I don't need to add to that. I will say just, I feel like I was selling Kevin a little short earlier when I just briefly described him as the silly little goofy guy. But yeah, Cam's performance brings so much texture to him that... Honestly, yeah, I, I can't think of a better actor for this role that he just really, he gets the comedy, he gets the depth, he yeah. gets the existential dread, and it all just kind of comes together in this very pathetic, but very human, and I'll say it, even sometimes lovable guy, but then he'll oh, say yeah. something that makes you like, oh, wait, I don't know if I love you, but like, but then, but he is the character who's genuinely questioning a lot of these things. He just, and not because he 
you know, he's like an audience avatar for the liberals to be like, yeah, we also disagree with this, but he just, he has these convictions, but he doesn't, what he learned in the school was that, you know, you can learn all this poetry and philosophy, but it'll always bring you to the same conclusion. And he's finally starting to question that, even if it's not actually going to break him out of those conclusions, that right. education has been internalized in him, but he has this zest for questioning and knowledge and discourse that ultimately never goes anywhere, which, okay, anyway, but yeah, great job yeah. in Cam's performance of bringing that to life. Phenomenal. Okay, you wanted to talk about Ruth. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Ruth as Teresa. First of all, like hats off to, again, like we read this play and like we obviously like reading the text, you're like amazing. On the feet, I'm like, oh my gosh, right. Teresa has swaths of text and not just, you know, dialogue, like monologues breaking down particular systems and ideologies. So like just hats off, first of all, for that feat accomplishment, you know, of tackling all of that and so articulate. Like I was like chewing on every word that Ruth was saying. And for someone who hadn't read the play before this, that character very much needs to, like that actor per se, I guess, needs to map out everything that they're saying, because I think Teresa is a lot of like the bones and foundation of why this piece exists. Like her character breaks down the fourth turning, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And so just brilliant, brilliant text work there. And again, there's this character is you like you are made to cringe. She opens up topics and then whoever she's having the conversation with sort of finds a way to manipulate that person by continuing to talk about the topic, but also peppering in outlandish other topic in comparison or contrast to the point where sometimes you're listening to a conversation that Teresa is having and quite literally, you're like, this is just absurdity now. Like, how, how are you comparing? Yeah. How do we get here to there? But it is such an indication of like sometimes how we talk as humans. I'm not even saying I'm saying like content aside, right? Like sometimes we have these big conversations and then the speaker and the listener at different times can realize they're going off the rails or they're losing their stance in what's supposed to be talked about or the debate their side. So they sort of start spiraling themselves. And instead of just agreeing to disagree or changing their opinion, they will just dig deeper and deeper and grab onto any other thing that's popping up in their mind and spew that forth as well. And I think that's very evident in Teresa. And I think Ruth did a wonderful job of doing that when like peppering in these tendrils of I've got to keep talking. I've got to win this conversation. So let me just keep spewing. She kind of lifted this outlandishness in such a spicy, feisty way that like, you know, people in the audience like guffawed or gasped or, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah. And, and I, oh, okay. I want to talk about too the costuming of the women. I will volley Ruth your way, but let's just talk about, I loved how the women were dressed in this piece. And we'll talk about 
Teresa first, wearing this like slim powder pink dress, like very slim fitting with like a white tiny cardigan and then all the way down to her shoes being nude, like the exact color of her skin tone, pretty much like the costume designer again. Wow. And her hair is like perfect and pinned up and everything. And it's like, this was just like a perfect embodiment of, I am a good Christian and also the crucifix necklace. I am a good Christian woman. I have been, you know, top of my class. I've continued peppering that into my everyday life. Again, I am a woman. I am a female. I am wearing pink. I am wearing a white, like, cardigan and skin tone white-ish shoes. Like, it's just very, it was, like, really, I don't want to say, like, it's not, certainly not clowny, but, like, just, like, the costume, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is, like, such a wonderful physical extension of who this person is. And one of the last things that we get Teresa that Teresa says is she's worried that her wedding, she just wants her wedding to be perfect. And she has this worry about like being loved. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, you are dressed like a wedding cake. Like this whole time, like it's almost like she's in preparation to give herself to this holy matrimony, you know? And like, maybe if I dress like the cake, like people will notice me or people, it just, Again, it was just, again, a, like icing on the cake, I guess, with her costume. And we'll get into the other girls' costumes when we unpack them. But I want to toss Teresa your way, Ryan. Yeah, completely agree about everything you say. I don't even know how much there is to add. What I like, we've seen Ruth perform many times before. She has excellent comedy chops and she brings this just confident playful argumentativeness to the character of Teresa. But then when we do see her breakdown at the end, I think it does show a very good swing of emotion for this character. So yeah, again, right. you've taken the words out of my mouth. I don't know what to add. Do you want to talk about Hallie next? Hallie Celine as Emily. I think she's such an interesting character. And it's funny when they announced that Howland Company was doing this, they have their regular stable of actors. And when we read the play, I'm like, I'm pretty sure Hallie's going to play Emily because <laughs> it just feels like such a perfect role for her. And she has this kind of like quiet demureness to her. She has this disease that makes her very humble, very sweet, appreciating her life. But she also can't be reduced to that sort of flat stereotype. I think the, the line that immediately sold me on Hallie's performance is the one where uh, Kevin says to her, Teresa is just going on about cocaine and sex and war. <laughs> and Hallie, as Emily says, what did she say about cocaine and sex? Like, and that like, you kind of have this like bug eyedness to her, like the excitement of yeah. like, yeah, forget about the war. What, what are those things that my life contains? None of that. I'm excited to hear about it. And yeah, and, yeah, and the fact that she has you know, she lives in DC, she has liberal friends, she's willing to go to bat for her positions, even if she's not the best debater and very difficult to debate against someone like Teresa, unless you're Dr. Gina Presson, who we'll get to in a moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I thought she, you know, she brought something really interesting to this character. And then of course, there's the ending monologue, which yes. ooh, I don't even know what to say about it. But suffice to say, yeah, the I've been saying like swings and pivots with all of these characters, but this is probably the biggest one in the oh, entire yeah. show. And yeah, Hallie, to be able to manage the original version of the character that we see and then do this kind of demonic pain induced, just 
you know, similar to the generator sound, but in words, it, yeah. it, it was remarkable. Anything you want absolutely. to add? Please, please go for yeah, it. Yeah, I just, I will absolutely agree with everything you said. And I also want to just add my little costume sort of visual please. of her. So I think, like I said, with the men kind of op- showing the opposite versions of manhood, I think you could see that a lot in Emily and Teresa, the opposite sort of depictions of womanhood. And with Emily, I think... <laughs> To me, she kind of gave off, like, with her costume, like, OG Taylor Swift vibes kind of thing. She has, like, a a nice, like, modest braid. She's, like, a feathery blue dress she's got going on, a more, like, rustic, cozy uh, cardigan, and, like, these blue, sorry, not blue, suede, not blue suede, just these beige suede cowboy boots. And so, again, kind of just showing in what you had said, kind of, like, this meek and mild groundedness we kind of have to her you know and and her kind of growing up here like I think that's very a good visualization of her kind of coming back to her roots and I think you've chatted about this too but she's kind of that character that is always like no matter how big grandiose the conversations get she's always kind of wanting to tether back to like oh I love you all still or like bringing it back to Christ and bringing it back to like the roots and the traditionalists and not really wanting to shake the boat too much. But then obviously we get that final monologue, which like you're saying is that exact pivot, which is just amazing. And Hallie's performance of that, I just want to say like bow down. I thought it was excruciatingly delicious and yeah, I had goosebumps. So that's where I'll end with that. Definitely. Uh, Like, I mean, you're going to want to see the show, but like, Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that so, alone was like, oh my gosh, right? This is like a micro play within. <laughs> it is, yeah, and it is a feat for the actor. <laughs> yeah. Okay, one one more character to go through, and then we should probably wrap up. Uh, of Dr. course, Gina Presson. You want to yes. this away here? Okay, so yeah, so Dr. Gina, I'm going to start from a costume perspective, kind of how I've been doing this whole episode. She walks in like a human star spangled banner. She comes in this stark red business dress. She's got a blue blazer on top and a string of pearls. And I think, again, like what a wonderful sort of punched picture of this character and what she represents. As we mentioned with the story, she just became president of this very conservative Catholic college. She's got her hair uptight in a bun and she just comes in. She says a little tipsy, but like we know this lady has been sort of probably living her ideal perfect life. And everyone, all of the heroes, the younger folks on stage are just like foaming at the mouth to get this woman's attention. Mm -hmm. She takes Teresa to task in, you know, you've, we find out there's a misunderstanding between what Teresa now believes a former student of hers and what her beliefs or what she thinks the school is doing for Mm -hmm. their students. And you just see the both of these women unravel and shock each other. And to me, I just want to say before, because I know, Ryan, you have kind of similar thoughts, but there, I think it's a wonderful thing with this older generation character that comes in. It's a wonderful, sad sort of, again, the system portrayal of She thinks she just released these students into the world and everything is fine and dandy. And yet, did she realize that these 
they, she didn't. She didn't support them. She didn't support them how the real world sort of required or needed them to. And it's it kind of it just brings me back to like, do you care? Do you actually care? Are you so embedded in your own beliefs and your traditions? And that is the way. And I'll say it: the that is the way. That is the Lord. The, the character is interesting because she seems to represent this idea of like a classical conservatism. That that you know she's the character who most openly disdains Trump and everything that the Republican Party has become, even though it is just furthering the same agendas that she supported when she supported Pat Buchanan or Barry Goldwater, as we're told in previous. It's just a cruder version of that. She calls it chemotherapy. That's going to wipe out the disease of liberalism and helpfully recharge their politics but she's like ah i failed you teresa because you've been swept up in the culture war business and i like i see this character as just like such an interesting she never really makes a good argument in defense of her views she usually just like throws it or changes she's like a rhetorical master that you might not even notice that she's doing it but it, you know she's just not going to take responsibility for what her party mm -hmm. and like-minded conservatives have become because she doesn't like it it doesn't it's not polite it's disgusting to her but at the same time it is ultimately the same beliefs as Teresa tries to show her but she's for all of her argumentative skills just isn't able to compete toe-to-toe -to -toe with her old mentor so to just like throw in the air like I have failed you have not become what I want like there's a moment for self-examination there that Gina certainly isn't going to seize but, but realize that oh maybe we have all failed collectively to you know put forward the type of political conservatism that we think is proper and not realizing that you know Trump is not the disease he's the symptom of a lot of everything that has been building up here to just yeah get back to Maria's performance in particular yeah she really mm. just brings this sternness she plays the tipsy well I think without letting it overpower the character she does she is confident talking about all of these things and is willing to uh, kind of go toe-to-toe -to -toe, similar to Mac uh, as Justin she brings a softness to it every time she talks mm -hmm. to Kevin there's this kind of like real maternal energy that she definitely does not provide to Emily which is also interesting in the performance yep. here but yeah, like, I, I, again, she, you know, everyone is so good in their roles here. And to the costume point that you made, I guess I completely agree. The Star Spangled Banner, mm, chef's kiss, brilliant. But we're also told very briefly after she exits the stage by Emily that she survived breast cancer. And this mm -hmm. blue blazer that kind of protrudes out, like, in the chess area, that's actually, I feel like, probably a deliberate costume choice or something that would maybe cover, like, up that area that might be vulnerable or possibly have been amputated or, you know, dealt yeah. with any surgery. So, yeah, I, I really see, like, there's a lot of, you know, not just the aesthetic vibe of what this costume conveys, but almost, like, practical choices of what someone who's lived the life of this character would decide to wear and, you know, and how it's maybe covering or compensating for something, a failure of womanhood, as she might even see it, like, in her right. kind of worldview that needs to be filled, a gap that needs to be filled in a way. Well, and the choice of the dress being red mm -hmm. and then a blue you know, like a blue blazer over top and those colors sort of red versus blue, the different par party colors too, right? Like not to say like, oh, great, now she's a Democrat, but like, no, you know, you know, what does it mean, right? To add like, that's, that's the color that's added on top of the red 
read mm-hmm. maybe more pungent Republican dress. Yeah, it's kind of a, this sort of cloak that goes over top that, yes, I am a Republican through and through, but I'm more nuanced in my opinions. Can't you see right. that I'm exactly, sporting both yeah. colors? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Any last okay. thoughts you want to, we're, we're, we're doing this, let's... Just, like, the, I just want to say, to the set, like, this is the second time I've seen a very intense piece in the studio at Crow's, which is their smaller sort of backspace studio, and quite literally any piece you see in there, like, you, it's kind of on your lap, it's unavoidable, you're, you are along for the ride, and I, the last thing I saw was how, not last thing, but the last sort of intense as intense and grotesque piece I saw there was punk rock, which Howland did several years ago. And that show also had gunshots and massive themes and breakdown of characters and bodily fluids. Um, So again, I just, I love this space. I love the studio. And I think it was, again, the set dressing was phenomenal. There was like mock wood chips that was like tethered around the space. There was like a, a back shed that kind of looked like your sort of traditional red middle American barn. They had sort of the exit and entrance to the theater space being exit and entrance to the house. And as you're sort of walking into the theater, it's like you are walking into these people's lives. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was a wonderful manipulation of the space. So yeah, hats off to set and the direction and play playground of the actors within that space. Yeah, agreed. And just like one thing that's, I guess, a complication of the space is that the seats really wrap around in all kinds of angles. There's like this one random seat that's like right next to the barn that we have <laughs> yeah, on the stage left side, I think. And, you know, you really do have to think about sight lines with this space mm-hmm. that it's not just mm-hmm. like a straightforward proscenium or even just a wraparound semi thrust. And yeah, yeah. like in, in the intimacy of this piece like it would have gotten swallowed in like the larger Goulian theater that they have at Crows that I think yeah you want it a small space like this sure. that will really just make you feel claustrophobic and absorbed into it I'm sure claustrophobic we're all sitting around probably... it's sitting around telling camp stories kind you know of, yeah it's fine <laughs> yeah. yeah we're just <laughs> in the backyard with these characters living their lives with them getting maybe yeah. a little too close for comfort yeah exactly <laughs> So as stated, this piece is happening at the Studio Theater. At It is a co-production with Crows and Howland Company, directed by the incredible Phil Aiken, assistant directed by the astonishing Stephen Howe, and the illustrious cast that we mentioned really does get us in the text. And you are, like I said, there's no intermission. So you are along for the ride through and through. This piece is happening until October 29th. And there is, like I said, little tickets remaining. So really jump on this if you, yeah, want to expose yourself to this thinker. Any finding, final concluding I, I thoughts for you, Ryan? It, leave it at that. I'm fine with what we've covered. Yeah. Great. Okay. So as usual, stay safe, stay healthy, friends. And yeah, expose yourself to the phenomenal art we've got going on in this city and around the country. Yeah. Cheers to that. We'll Cheers see you next episode, folks. Doobly do. Doobly do.